Cities How to Build a Healthy City podcast is supported by Novo Nordisk. The lockdown has revealed big inequalities. The children in the wealthy areas had a good internet, but also sometimes had a garden, or they had a secondary home where they could go and be uh, along the sea or in the mountains. While, of course, some families were in a way stuck in the city. There were like uh, three uh, in a room without a proper internet. That's Marion Wallet the advisor to Paris's deputy mayor for urban planning. The city is one of the most densely populated in Europe, and although the pandemic has exposed many health inequalities within the French capital, it has strengthened planners' determination to remake the city. I think the pandemic has confirmed our urban priorities. We want to leave this uh, classical urban planning which was based on uh, asphalt, concrete and cars and we want a new model based on green spaces on pedestrians it's really a a fundamental right also to access nature my name's darren dodd and i'm the editor of ft health reports in this series i've been asking how do you build a healthy city cities have been hit hardest by this pandemic hospitals have been overwhelmed Businesses have been disrupted and access to public spaces halted. Density is the enemy when you're trying to contain a virus. In this episode, we're going to be asking how the pandemic will reshape our cities. The pandemic has created, I think, a different relationship between the people and their neighbourhood. And for some people, they realised how they were missing some urban amenities And we'll be hearing from FT correspondents in other cities too. In London, Chief UK commentator Robert Shrimsley examines how the virus has accelerated economic and social inequalities. Any crisis has a front line, be it a military crisis where it's the military, or a health crisis like this, there are going to be people who take up more of the burden of the crisis. In this case, it's mostly been health and care workers, not just them, obviously, delivery drivers, supermarket workers and so on. In Delhi, Amy Kasmin, the FT's South Asia Bureau Chief, looks at the impact of India's lockdown on the country's migrant workers. The lockdown was imposed with just four hours notice, so people had very little time to get ready. It was announced at 8pm and took effect at midnight. So people were left without salary, without income, and basically millions of working class people were essentially converted into beggars overnight. But first, to Paris. FT columnist Simon Cooper has lived there for close to 20 years. There's been a huge push from Paris's city hall to create more green spaces, clean up air pollution and close streets to cars so children have space to play. Hi, Simon. How are you? Uh, I'm well, thanks, Darren. How are you and where are you? Well, I'm in uh, lockdown in North London. What about you? What's the situation in Paris at the moment? The lockdown has really ended and so street life has resumed. The city has become quite bustling and so far there hasn't been a rise in cases. So Simon, give us an idea of how green a city Paris is. Paris is not very green. It's uh, the densest city in Western Europe. It's very built up, a lot of stone. Pollution has been a very big problem. Uh, thousands of Parisians, like Londoners, are killed by pollution each year in normal times, air pollution. 
And of course, one of the discoveries of lockdown is how clean air in Paris can be when you don't have cars. So you spoke to Marion Waller. What does she do and, and why did you want to speak to her? Well, she's that very French being who is both a policymaker, she works for the City Hall, and a philosopher. And so she's thought about these issues very deeply, but she's also part of a very powerful team in the Hôtel de Ville uh, City Hall. And what's Paris like for children? I mean, Paris is a city that was built by adults for adults, like most cities. And children are meant historically to be seen and not heard here. For example, in courtyards, children are not allowed to meet other kids in the building in the courtyard to make any kind of noise there of play. And since the car was the kind of most favoured item of transport, and driving here is very aggressive, it's not been a safe city to let your children just go out by themselves. Paris was designed mostly for adults, and sometimes as a child you, you can feel that you're not always welcome. But the good thing with Paris is that you can always make the city evolve. Even if the city is quite old, nothing is impossible to change. If your city is adapted to children, then it can be adapted to everyone. And have you seen the city becoming more suited for children? I have, slowly and gradually. The street where my children play football, it was a street not much used by cars, and the kids in the neighbourhood began to claim it and play football there. And after they had done this spontaneously, the local town hall of our Arrondissement finally closed it to cars. So the children took the initiative and the city followed years later. And so Marion has talked about how there's plans to make more and more play streets and also to have uh, traffic calming on streets with schools so that the area around the school becomes a place where children can walk safely. Is Paris capable of evolving? I mean, does it have the capacity to become a greener city? Paris is evolving. I mean, it's just a matter of fact that um, there have been huge additional restrictions on cars, a large gain in space for bicycles and pedestrians pre-COVID and now accelerated by COVID. And the new push is to green the city. We created the right for all Parisian people to take care of a, a part of public space if they want to plant something. They are responsible for this space. Also, we want to create several urban forests in the following years in Paris because uh, we think that small, dense forests in the heart of the city can really bring a different atmosphere and fresh air. Have you felt or seen some of these green changes that Marion talks about? Very much so. I mean, for 15 or so years, I would take a metro to my little office. And in about November, December, I bought a bicycle. I hadn't cycled in Paris for about a decade since I'd been knocked off my bike in an era when it was very bicycle unfriendly. And so now I cycle very happily down the boulevard to my office, a boulevard which is now bike paths all the way. I hadn't imagined two years ago that this would be possible. So coronavirus has highlighted the deep inequalities that exist in cities, but will these changes be implemented in, in the banlieue, in the poorer suburbs around the city? We always knew that Paris was a dreadfully unequal city, with most of the wealth concentrated in the uh, western arrondissement of the centre and the poverty in far-flung banlieue suburbs. So the pandemic has been much worse in the poorer areas. Saint-Saint-Denis has been badly affected. There were also riots in Saint-Saint-Denis during the lockdown. 
partly because uh, young people were confined in uh, very small spaces and this was hard to bear. And the deaths have been worse among poorer people who often had service jobs that they continued having to take public transport in during the worst of the pandemic and who live in smaller apartments, often with uh, lots of people. And so Marion told me more about these inequalities and how the city is addressing them. The risk is really that a new social gap appears between those who cannot leave the city and those who can leave the city when there is a crisis, when there is a problem. And so, yes, we have to make every neighborhood livable so that staying in the city when there is a crisis is not uh, something negative. So what's the big problem that Paris needs to fix? And is it feasible? The big problem in Paris is segregation. The great mistake of Paris was to build a ring road around the city from the 60s, the Périphérique Ring Road. So that created a very visible border, hard to cross between the rich city and the poorer suburbs, which now is the difference between um, you know white and black, often quite literally. I should also mention outside Paris in the suburbs is the biggest transport infrastructure project going on in continental Europe right now. They're extending the metro to the suburbs, building 68 new stations. My hope is that through finally bringing proper public transport to those areas, the kind of fortress-like divide between the city and the ring road as the segregator of the city from its suburbs will now start to fade. Thanks to Simon Cooper speaking to me from Paris. It's not uncommon in big cities in front of large major public hospitals to see hordes of people like sleeping outside, waiting for their turn at a bed or have a chance to see a doctor. And of course, the arrival of a pandemic into this system, now the healthcare system is really under very, very serious strain. And now we have reports of COVID patients being turned away. Amy Kasman lives in Delhi and is the FT's South Asia Bureau Chief. When Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi imposed a lockdown on the country, more than 140 million migrant workers lost their jobs and were left trapped, separated from their families as public transport was suspended. India's beginning to emerge from lockdown, but the country's hospitals, overcrowded even before the pandemic, are struggling to cope. Hi, Amy. Hi, Darren. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. And how's lockdown in Delhi? Well, lockdown in Delhi is gradually unlocking, so we actually see a lot of restrictions being eased at a time when the caseload is rising steadily, which is somewhat concerning. How typical is Delhi of an Indian city? Look, Indian cities are all very crowded and bustling places with high population densities and large numbers of people coming in from an impoverished countryside looking for jobs and opportunity. You have people really living cheek by jowl in various degrees of housing from big wealthy people housing to real crowded slums and flimsy shelters. All of that is there in Delhi, and this is representative of many Indian cities. What steps did the Indian government take to stop the spread of coronavirus? 
in the third week of March, it finally dawned on policymakers that, in fact, coronavirus was here and it might not be so easy to control or they hadn't managed to keep it out in the first place. And that is when Prime Minister Modi, in a move that really shocked the entire country because there had been so little warning, they suddenly imposed this draconian lockdown. Tell us a bit about Dr Jana. Why did you want to speak to him? Dr. Smartaji Jana is a very well-respected epidemiologist and public health professional in Calcutta who has worked on infectious disease control in the slums of Calcutta with some of the most marginalized populations in the country. And he was an important figure in crafting out India's very successful HIV AIDS prevention strategy India managed to really limit the spread and didn't have such a massive epidemic as other countries did. And so I thought it was very interesting to hear what he had to say about how the government has handled this particular virus. When you talk about lockdown, the basic objective is to help people to maintain physical distancing, which is the basis to reduce transmission. If you look into this approach and its implementations in a country like India, primarily focusing major cities, it is really difficult to implement for a couple of reasons. One is, of course, the population density, which is very high, which is ranging between 60 to 80,000 per square mile. Its markets, housing, transport, everything is work in a very congested space. Even in metropolis where, say, almost half of the people live in shanty towns or slums, a section of people, it ranges between 15 to 20 percent who lives in streets. So people, those who have no houses, how you can lock them down? Who's been hit hardest by the lockdown? The impact of lockdown fell very, very, very hard on millions and millions of migrant workers who depend on daily wages to earn, who have no kind of salary security, and all public transport was suspended. In the absence of public transport, thousands of people set out on these arduous treks by foot or sometimes by bicycle more than a thousand kilometers across the country to basically try to reach their homes in rural villages. I think policymakers came to know that they didn't include the importance of migrant workers. Now when these migrant workers, after two months completion of the lockdown, are being sent back to their homes. They are carrying corona, as a result of which the spread of corona from one state to another and from cities to villages has been intensified. Second problem, as the corona has created and uh, sort of stigma and discriminations, they are at the receiving end in their villages in shanty towns where they are not accepted by the local people. So it's creating double burden for them. What kind of lessons can be learnt from the way these people were treated by the government? 
Look, I think that the lockdown was imposed with very little planning, very little consultation. You know, it was basically Prime Minister Narendra Modi's own decision to do this, taken in a sense of panic when he looked around and saw what was happening in advanced countries and trying to adopt the same strategy that he saw them using. And I think that the important lesson here is that strategies that may work in one socioeconomic context may not work in another. And I think that this has highlighted the importance of consulting a wide range of experts, not just from your political circles or your five trusted aides, but to really bring in a wide circle of people and, and really hammer out a strategy. If you compare the transmission of HIV and transmission of COVID-19, there are a lot of similarities. Uh, in both the cases, what we need, you need not just only providing adequate information, but you have to support them with adequate services, as well as you have to address all different structural barriers, as I explained earlier. People who do not have houses, how they can be locked down in their houses? If you do not have proper adequate water, you cannot ask people to wash their hands with soaps. All those things are extremely important to look into. Why can't we bring these migrant workers or workers who are in the informal sectors into the policy-making bodies? Thanks to Amy Kasman. If you work in a shop, if you work in a factory, if you work in an office, you can try and build parameters around yourself to try and minimise risk. But, you know, you get on a crowded train or a crowded bus, you have very few options. That's why people are questioning how cities will evolve, because it's the mass transit that makes them function. Robert Shrimsley is the FT's chief political commentator and UK editor at large. According to the Office for National Statistics, those who live in some of the UK's most deprived communities were much more likely to die from COVID-19. A key factor is the matter of choice. Many simply do not have the option of working from home. They have no choice but to go out to work and then return home and potentially infect older members of their family. Hello, Robert. How are you? Hi, Darren. I'm good. Robert, how has the virus affected the UK's big cities? Well, obviously, at the moment, it's emptied them out. So the impact on cities has been enormous. What we're going to start questioning is how the cities change once people can go back into them in anything like the numbers that, that they did in the past. And within the cities as well, I guess one of the most striking aspects of this crisis is the way it's affected people in deprived communities more than, more than other people. Yes, well, obviously, the closer you live together, the less personal space you have, and therefore, generally, the poorer you are, the less you can shelter yourself from this virus. You know, if you live, as I do, in southwest London, a reasonably nice suburb, quite a bit of green space, able to work entirely from home, it can be a perfectly comfortable existence. If you're stuck in a flat, if you've got young kids who are of school age, you're trying to homeschool them, maybe you only have one laptop between them. If you don't have any outdoor space, it's been an altogether different experience. In your recent FT column, you talked about the burden of the crisis falling unevenly on people who work in transport, supermarkets and delivery drivers, etc. What should we be doing to protect these workers? What I think is interesting is that when people start to return to work normally, you're going to see another inequality, which is the inequality of options about your health. 
So again, if you have a, a white collar job, if you work in an office, if you're able to work from home, you can opt not to take some of the risks of this crisis. If you have the kind of job where a physical presence is required, and in a lot of cases, those are lesser paid jobs, not always, but often, then you don't have those same options. You have to go to work. You probably have to commute. You probably have to commute in the rush hour. You can't opt out of the health risks. Some of the things can be tackled in the workplace in terms of more distancing, protective screens, but you know, plenty of jobs can't allow distancing at all. How do you distance if you're a hairdresser? So the only path through it, I think, aside from good regulation and abeyance of those regulation, is a, a culture of workplace rights so that people feel able to say to their bosses, I don't feel safe, I want to do this differently. Hmm. Yeah, it's quite interesting reading this morning, there's been an uptick in union membership during the crisis, which I guess plays to that need to get some kind of security in uncertain times. Do you think this experience will lead to people leaving cities? The two things that drive people away from cities and the centre of cities in the end tend to be fear of crime, urban flight and lack of jobs. So as long as there are jobs in the centre, people will come to the centre. You know, as we reimagine the world in the pandemic, I think it's very easy to get very, very um, you know, imaginative about this and start thinking the world's going to be completely different. And I think in reality, inertia kicks in and most people will stumble back to the lives they had before with relatively few exceptions, except that we will try to be a bit more conscious of our health and try to put a bit more distance between ourselves. Can you think of any ways in which cities can address some of these inequalities? I think there is probably something that can be done in terms of public transport. The government's already said it's looking at electric scooters. But again, you know, one has to be realistic about this, you know, that getting off the bus or getting off the train for a commute that is a a half an hour cycle or a half an hour walk is one thing. But if that's not an option for you, in the end, you are reliant either on a car or on public transport. But I think the more that government and city councils can do to encourage people off of public transport, that will be a major benefit. So as we start thinking about reopening and returning to work now, what professions do you think are going to find restrictions quite hard to cope with? Well, I think it's very clear. It's obviously the professions which don't want social distancing. So the hospitality, the leisure industry, those are the kind of areas where I think we should worry. And I think we should worry for two reasons, not just for those industries in themselves, but also because if we are moving into a period of substantial unemployment, those are exactly the kind of industries that often soak up the jobless and people move from whatever job they had into temporary work in hospitality, in restaurants, in bars, whatever it is, and particularly the young do that. So if those industries are being particularly hard hammered, which they are, it's a double problem. It's a problem for the industry and it's a problem for the wider economy as people find it harder to find any alternative employment. That's it for this special episode of How to Build a Healthy City. If you want to learn more about how cities are tackling a variety of health issues, from loneliness in Copenhagen to healthy eating in Japan, scroll back through our feed. You can listen to our show for free on FT.com, Apple Podcasts, Acast, or your podcatcher of choice. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a minute to rate and review the show. To read more from me and other journalists you've heard in this FT special report series, visit ft.com slash reports. I'm Darren Dodd. Thanks for listening. The FT's How to Build a Healthy City podcast is supported by Novo Nordisk, a global healthcare company committed to defeating diabetes. 
today so many people, more than 400 million people are suffering from diabetes and more than 650 million people are suffering from obesity. If we don't do anything, it's likely that the number of people with diabetes would increase to more than 700 million 25 years from now. So that means that many people will be impacted by this, not only now, but with the prevalence going forward, it's going to be an even bigger societal problem. And if we can introduce stronger preventional efforts, it is likely that we will be able to bend that curve so that the prevalence can remain at a lower level. Camilla Sulvest is Executive Vice President of Novo Nordisk. Camilla oversees the company's commercial strategy and corporate affairs. Defeating diabetes is really our key purpose in Novo Nordisk. And uh, just recently, we have launched a new social responsibility strategy that we call Defeat Diabetes. So for us, social responsibility means assessing what can we as a company do to help society solve some of its biggest problems. We believe that our social responsibility must go hand in hand with our business strategy. And that's the way we have developed our new social responsibility, with, of course, innovation as our core contribution. We also understand that even if we do a lot of innovation and we also improve access to care, we will still not completely be able to tackle the problem of defeating diabetes. So we also need to invest in prevention efforts. Prevention is really a way for us to also help society reduce the cost, but also, of course, the human cost of these serious chronic diseases. Two-thirds of people with diabetes we know live in big cities, and that's why the Cities Changing Diabetes Network and the collaborative efforts between us and those big megacities is very important to address the diabetes problem. Prevention mostly happens outside the health sector. And I think it's actually the same way with diabetes and obesity when we look at prevention. We need to look at what actually happens outside the health sector to be effective in this regard. Nils Lund is the Vice President of Global Prevention and Health Promotion at Novo Nordisk. His role looks at ways in which the number of people developing diabetes can be lowered, particularly in urban areas. Diabetes is not just biomedical. It's not just about weight and blood sugar and blood pressure and so on. It's also about the life that you live, the family you live in, the community you live in. And social determinants of health or health inequalities are really important factors to uh, understand and do something about if you really want to get a more healthy population, more productive population in your city. So let me give you an example about food and nutrition. We know from evidence from Seattle that BMI increases the closer you live to fast food outlets and it decreases the closer you live to uh, groceries that have fresh fruit and vegetables. So if you combine that with the fact that many poor inner city areas don't really have regular supermarkets and you can call them food deserts in fact, we will try to work in nutrition to see if how we can improve access to healthy foods in poor neighborhoods. But it's really difficult because food is so deeply ingrained in our culture. Everywhere around the planet we say, when we meet, we eat. And therefore changing nutrition and diet, you know, is maybe also about the small steps, you know, beyond formal health systems, beyond government institutions, but actually that social fabric of community organizations as a way to bring resilience to a community. 
So we actually worked uh, in a couple of places with faith-based organizations to see how we can use those places of community where people trust each other in a way to also help people to reduce their risk of diabetes by having uh, diabetes educator programs for people who actually come to these churches and synagogues and temples and so on. This was something they championed in Houston and something that has inspired the other places in the world. I'm Lars Furgaard Jorgensen, president and CEO of Nordisk, a global healthcare company with more than 95 years of innovation and leadership in diabetes care. This heritage has given us experience and capabilities that also enable us to help people defeat other serious chronic diseases such as hemophilia, growth disorders and obesity. Part of defeating diabetes means stopping people from getting the disease in the first place. That's why we have started Cities Changing Diabetes with the ambition of halting the rise in diabetes. You can find more at the website cityschangingdiabetes.com. Thanks for listening to the FT's How to Build a Healthy City podcast, supported by Nordisk.